and welcome to Historical for another journey through words that shaped the world. Today we're travelling through the gaslit streets of Victorian London and landing in the cosy, cramped and slightly drug-infested rooms of 221B Baker Street. Whether you already have your collection of deer stalkers or think that Sherlock Holmes sprang fully formed from the imaginations of Benedict Cumberbatch and the BBC, please join us on Facebook and Instagram, which are excellent places to find out what the great game really is, who put their foot in it, and why the world's greatest detective spent so much time hanging out in opium dens. 1887 was an interesting year in England. Queen Victoria was celebrating her Diamond Jubilee, the St John's Ambulance Brigade was being formed, and the English adventurer Thomas Stevens completed the first ever circumnavigation by bicycle on a penny farthing, having set out from San Francisco in 1884, and, one imagines, having lost many pieces of knee skin and the nerves of his backside along the way. On Christmas Day, the first Glenfiddich single malt scotch whiskey was distilled, and it's a testament to quite how remarkable today's hero is that that was not the most far-reaching moment of festive cheer. Beaton's Christmas Annual, a yearly paperback magazine, published a novel called A Study in Scarlet, and a tall, sinewy man with an enormous intellect, a short fuse, and an unfortunate proclivity for cocaine, strolled into 221B Baker Street, flung himself into an armchair, stretched his feet out to the fire, and has remained there, at least in the public imagination, ever since. It might sound a bit romantic, but it would not be an exaggeration to say that Sherlock Holmes changed the world. This is impressive, not just because almost a decade and a half have passed since the famous detective's first appearance, nor because he had to compete with Thomas Stevens' rear end, but because, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, Sherlock Holmes is not a real person. If that sounds obvious to the point of banality to you, it may surprise you to learn that in a 2008 survey of British teenagers, 58% of the participants believed that Sherlock Holmes was an historical figure, not a literary one. If you share my mistrust or fear of teenagers generally, you might be inclined to view this finding with the healthy scepticism of every good amateur detective, and may indeed have gone full Sherlock and cried, data, data, data. Well, here's some more. In 1887, when Holmes and his devoted friend Dr. Watson first took up residence together at 221B Baker Street, that address actually didn't exist yet. In fact, it didn't exist until almost 60 years later, when the street was extended and the Abbey National Building moved in. Almost immediately, letters from fans began pouring in, and the Abbey National, rather sweetly, began answering them. A surprising number of these were from people who believed that Sherlock Holmes was a real consulting detective and wanted to make appointments to discuss the mysterious disappearances of their cats or jewellery or spouses. You get the idea. The honour of the famous address is now held by the Sherlock Holmes Museum and the letters from hopeful prospective clients continue to this day. That people are willing to pay for the investigative services of a man who would by now be about 170 years old is either delightful proof that people really do believe that age is just a number, or a scathing indictment of modern education. But Sherlock Holmes, of course, is not real, and it is testament to his creator that this legacy and this enthusiasm lives on. 
he sprang off of the page from the first, so thoroughly realized and so intriguingly complex that the idea that he was not waiting in his armchair in Baker Street, filling the tiny space with tobacco smoke and keeping his mail speared with a knife to the mantelpiece seemed almost untenable. Arthur Conan Doyle wasn't the first writer of detective fiction, nor was Sherlock Holmes the first fictional detective. In A Study in Scarlet, Dr. Watson compares his new housemate to two other popular detectives already floating around in the annals of fiction. Auguste Dupin, created by Edgar Allan Poe, and Emile Gaborio's Monsieur Lecoq. Watson, of course, means this as the height of praise. Sherlock Holmes is characteristically indignant. Doyle, like Watson, was a great admirer of both detectives, and there was no slight intended. Certainly he did not expect his mercurial, obsessive, cocaine-fueled sleuth to eclipse them, perhaps not even to match them. The obsessive fixation that Holmes inspired couldn't have been predicted by either Doyle or anyone else, because it had never happened before. Today the sight of shrieking fans in elaborate cosplay, dedicating entire weekends to fictional universes, fictional characters, and minute fictional details, is not uncommon. I myself am the proud owner of four pairs of Hogwarts housepants and a Protect Ghost t-shirt, and let's not forget the terrible period of collective global mourning inspired by the last season of Game of Thrones. This is fandom, and avid readers of the Sherlock Holmes stories were the ones who started it. In 1893, Doyle published The Final Problem. By this time, he felt Holmes had not only run his course, but had become something of a millstone. Doyle wanted to spend more time on what he thought of as his serious writing. But the stories were so popular that perhaps he felt a simple sidestep was impossible. This, you must remember, was 1893, and George R.R. Martin had not yet proven that an author can take as long as they please to continue a story, or not continue, as the case may be. Doyle killed Holmes off in a final struggle with his arch-rival Moriarty, who, incidentally, inspired the criminal cat McCavity in T.S. Eliot's poem and Andrew Lloyd Webber's unfortunate musical. The public was furious. People went to work wearing black armbands, and the mailboxes at Doyle's residence and the Strand magazine, his publisher, were inundated with letters that ranged from heartbroken to hostile. The Strand magazine was probably the biggest loser. Some 20,000 people cancelled their subscriptions in protest. Doyle resisted the public pressure for eight years, a period which fans came to call the Great Hiatus. Eventually, he gave in. His first move was to pen a previously untold story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, set before the time of Sherlock's death. This whetted the public's appetite, but it didn't appease them. Nothing but a full return to breathing, reasoning, and low-key sarcasm would do for their hero. In 1903, ten years after Sherlock's apparent plunge over the Reichenbach Falls, he was back in 221B Baker Street as before, pipe in hand, although seemingly miraculously cured of his addiction to cocaine. This medical mystery is the subject of Nicholas Mayer's 1974 book, The 7% Solution, in which Watson reveals that Holmes's death was faked as a cover story. Far from plummeting into the Reichenbach depths and then hanging around the pool, sipping Shirley Temples, injecting his preferred 7% solution of cocaine and reading trashy literature, 
Sherlock had instead been tricked by Watson into visiting Sigmund Freud and submitting himself for rehab treatment. In return, Sherlock helps him to clear up one or two little mysteries. Frankly, the most unbelievable part of the whole story is that Watson might be able to trick Sherlock Holmes into doing anything, but never mind that. The premise is that Mayer is not the author. Watson is the real author, and Mayer is merely the editor of a lost manuscript. But Mayer wasn't being facetious or pulling a fast one to sell more books. He was playing the game. The game, capital T, capital G, is the starting premise of many of the great Sherlockian literary societies, and the idea is to approach the work as though Watson and Holmes were real, living people. The stories are not just narrated by Watson, they're written by him, and Arthur Conan Doyle is a mere literary agent. It was all kicked off by a very good-looking priest and scholar called Ronald Knox, and it became hugely popular. A great deal of scholarly research has been conducted by Sherlockians in this vein, from analyzing historical records of train crashes to find the exact individual who may have been Helen Stoker's dead mother in the speckled band, to trying to account for inaccuracies across the canon, like Watson's real name or the location of his war wound. One Sherlockian described the approach, saying, It must be played as solemnly as a county cricket match at Lord's. The slightest touch of extravagance or burlesque ruins the atmosphere. A number of eccentrics have, of course, graced the pages of Sherlockian periodicals, but so have a number of serious literary minds. Stephen Fry, in his fantastic audiobook of the collected Holmes stories, attributes the love of scholarship and reading fostered by the game to his ability to pull himself out of the whirlpool of a troubled adolescence. And of course, the principles of the game are the same as those upon which all fandom is now founded. The obsessive need to know, for example, where, or indeed whether, Harry Potter brushed his teeth, is largely rooted in the suspension of disbelief. If you imagine walking into Comic-Con and shouting, Captain America isn't real, you'll get my point. Holmes's return from death may have appeased the public, but it did nothing to abate their appetite for him. In 2012, he was awarded the title of Most Portrayed Literary Human Character in Film and TV by the Guinness Book of World Records, and the stories continue to be widely consumed around the globe. The fan reaction to the BBC's series Sherlock was probably the single largest collective response since Victorians took to wearing mourning for his much-exaggerated death. Interestingly, one of the most unexpected fan reactions to the show was a sudden uptick in coat sales. As journalist Alexis Petridis wrote, So it is that Britain's latest men's style icon is a fictional asexual sociopath first seen on screen hitting a corpse with a horsewhip. Surely not even the great detective himself could have deduced that that was going to happen. Thank you for joining this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice, subscribe so that you never miss another episode, and leave us a rating and review so that we can continue to tell cool stories. You can also come and find us on Instagram and Twitter at historical underscore podcast and join the Facebook group, which is an excellent place to tell us which words you'd like to hear next. Join us again for more words that shape the world every Tuesday.